You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. There's a place here at the table. Your coats go by the door. You can kick your shoes off in that pile on the floor. I hope you wore elastic because your waistband's going to get tight. Take time. That's the first time we've jinxed over Zoom in a long time. That's right. We both really want to introduce the show. I feel like we've become old hands at this. But anyway, I'm Sophie. And I'm Ari. And you're listening to Having a Night. Dinner party, something, something, something. Oh, my God. Dinner parties are on the horizon. Dinner parties are on the horizon. I know. Newsflash, we both got our first vaccine dose. Oh my God, guys, we are so excited. What is your read on like when you're going to start socializing with people indoors? Are you waiting for your second dose? Definitely waiting for my second dose. Same, same. Because the whole science with transmissibility is very unclear to me. I don't know if it's clear to anyone, but uh, so I just want to make sure that I'm I feel great. I will feel great when I'm more protected, but I want to protect others. That's been the whole journey with this thing. It's like not not so much about oneself yeah. as it is about, you know, giving it to, to someone who's higher risk. Very true. A very hard thing for Americans to wrap their brains around, apparently. Very um, hard. Since we both got our first one, that basically means mid-April, we can begin having dinner parties again. I want to tear my face off. I'm so excited. I know. But are our dinner parties going to be just for people who have been vaccinated? Yes, 100%. And I think that's totally fine. I think it's it'll become elitist. Are... No, but I think the deal is basically it can be people who have been vaccinated and one household that has not been vaccinated. So the CDC today said that if you've been vaccinated, you can socialize with members of one household. But the point is for them, obviously, like not to commingle yeah. with yeah. other unvaccinated households. So. Oh, it's so exciting. I mean, I'm already thinking about my menu, about my guest list. Anyway, <laughs> mm-hmm, what did you eat this week? I feel so sick of eating foods. I mean, I'll never be sick of eating foods, but do you ever go through a phase like that where I'm just, yes. I feel like I've been eating the same things over and over and I'm, and then every time dinner rolls around, I'm like, again? I think it has to do with, you know, not, not living in the city anymore and having just the array of just the different types of foods that are available to me is, is just way smaller than normal. So we get sick of either cooking in the same, like three takeout spots. Yeah. I mean, we could probably be more adventurous. We definitely could, but, uh, it's been hard with people who have different dietary needs and and tastes. Yeah. Obviously when people are like, yeah, I just sometimes forget to eat. I, of course I'm like, I don't understand what that feels like, but the thing that you're describing, I do understand where you're sort of like, I have to cook again, which means I have to do dishes again, which means I'm going to end up eating something that like, I'm trying to be creative, but Mm -hmm. I kind of don't really have the energy to be creative. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's when like a good slice of pizza comes, comes well. in the clutch. Funny you should say, because I've been feeling this way for probably two weeks. And it, over the past, I think, four days, I've had pizza twice. Yeah. Because it's, some, it's just the only answer. It's like, well, you know, what do I want then? Just pizza and a salad. Right. It's like pizza or maybe a burger. It's something that yeah. you know is going to taste good and that somehow like maintains an aura of like, this is delicious. Right. What about okay. you? Please. Oh Please my God. So had a couple of eh meals this weekend, but that's okay. Cause shit happens, you know? Um, but Harry made this amazing slow roasted salmon over rice with a dashi that he had also cooked leeks and shiitake mushrooms in. Mm. It was so good. And I'm not usually like if I'm eating somewhere and they have a brothy fish, I'm like, no, I want a fish that has something going on. I don't want soup near it. 
Oh, I love that. Whatever. Like just a brothy thing. It doesn't get me excited, but this was Mm -hmm. so good. And obviously the rice like soaked up a lot of the broth and was delicious. Did he cook the salmon separately from? Yeah. So it was a Mm -hmm. slow roasted salmon. I think he put it in the oven at 350 and slow roasted it for also salmon is such a funny thing to like quote unquote slow roast because yeah, (laughs) slow is like 25 minutes instead of 10. Mm -hmm. And it was so good. That kind of really fatty salmon. Ooh, it's just a beauty unto itself. Yes. Although I must say, sometimes that really fat, fatty salmon for me is really, really good when it's fresh out the oven, but does not re- reheat well. For some reason, the fattier it is, the and I, I think it's specific to salmon, the like fishier it gets after it's, yes. I don't know why. It's funny because I, I really don't want to be a person who's like, yeah, fish the next day just is less appealing, but it's so much less appealing. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. It's like, it does get a much fishier taste. I usually don't even reheat it. I'll just have it cold mm-hmm. and like imagine that it was poached. Right. But, right. I mean, fish is one of those things. You just got to eat it the first day. As soon as you cook it, you got to eat it. Yeah. I mean, I think if it's brothy, it gives you some leeway and some fish. Look, I had a blackened salmon mm-hmm. that reheated super well because it was, uh, you know, covered in spices covered in stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I also just want to give a shout out. I am drinking a Riesling, a New York Riesling from Herman J. Weimer, which is a fabulous winery in the Finger Lakes. Mm -hmm. If people who are listening to this podcast live in the States and have never had a New York Riesling, you guys should try them. They're so good. This one is like very dry, so tasty, really unique. And I think, you know, people have such a weird thing about Rieslings. I mean, I feel like every sommelier is like, I'm obsessed with Rieslings, but then- Mm the lay people like us think they're all sweet, but they're not. So I'm just putting a hey, hey out for that. A hey, hey out for Riesling. Hey, hey for Riesling hey, hey this week. For Riesling. Question. Can you tell me and our listeners like what the price range is for this wine? Unless it's like you don't want to say. Is it, no, an ex- no. was it a small, medium, large price amount? Oh no, I think it's I think it's medium and I think they actually have quite a range. I went to their vineyard this summer and they make a ton of wines. The vineyard has actually been there for like over a hundred years. It's one of the oldest vineyards, I believe, in America, or wine producers rather. And I think it goes from like low medium to high medium. Okay. Price. But very worthwhile. Their, their cheapest bottles are probably around 20 bucks. And then I think mm-hmm. they go up, up, up from there, but really worth trying. And also just, if you're curious about different grapes or different flavors that like you don't drink a lot, it's wonderful. Speaking of wines, we have a special guest on today who knows her wines, like, like borderline professionally. Sheila Marikar. She is fantastic. She's actually a writer. So she is food world adjacent. She's written about Goggin. She's written about all kinds of food stuff, but she's also, she refers to herself a generalist. So she writes about all kinds of topics. The New Yorker, New York Times, yep. many other publications. But I totally agree. It's like her knowledge of both food and wine are incredibly in depth. I kind of feel like we got schooled a little bit in this episode, which which we need. She has been... Doing it right over Zoom, which we also get into. So some inspiration there as we party out the the dying days, hopefully, of, of the Zoom dinner party. Yes, exactly. I know she did have good ideas. I think, what if, it was about to be like, because Zoom dinner parties will never return, knock on wood. But I still think it's good to have in the in your back pocket, just in case, like, there's a snowstorm outside and you were supposed to go and see your friends. And so oh, I said you need to Or like if you're working in another city or country and you, I, I think it's a yeah. It'll be a great way we can continue to keep in touch with each other as opposed to like just texting each other. You know? That's very true. Wait, really quickly before we delve into the interview, did you watch hmm. Harry and Meghan and Oprah? Of course. You did? Oh my God, I haven't seen it. Well, hold on. Let's let's let everyone listen to the interview and we can get into that briefly when we're done with Sheila. I like the way you're thinking. Everybody, yeah. enjoy. We're here with Sheila Marikar. We're so excited. Something that Ari and I have been bemoaning since the beginning of this pandemic is like, we have found it impossible to figure out how to host a good Zoom dinner party. We tried a little bit at the beginning and it just did not happen. In your email, you were basically like, 
I've been hosting these Zoom dinner parties, and I actually think they might be even better than IRL dinner parties. Can you please give us all your tips? Tell us about them. I don't know exactly how many I've done, but I do know that the one that I participated in last Friday was far and away the best. And uh-huh. and it, there were six of us, and all of us said, this is this is pretty much as good as a, a real life dinner party. So the way that it worked was we started off with a virtual wine tasting uh, and I'll, I'll get, I can talk more about those as well. But uh, my friend Michelle contacted a winery in Paso Roble called Onyx, O-N-X, hmm. I believe it's called Onyx. And uh, they sent us little kits of four wine samples And we set a date and time with uh, one of their staffers who Zoomed in from Paso Roble, wine country, about um, two and a half hours, I think, north of L.A. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, we were were three different households. And so we had a little four box on Zoom. And uh, this very nice gentleman led us through a tasting of four of their wines. And it gave us, first, it gives you something to kind of like, it's like an activity. It's just like a real life activity. Yeah, you've got six people and we're all on the same page because we're all doing this thing. I think only two of us had ever actually had the wines before. So it was a nice kind of new experience and got to virtually tour the vineyard and Mm -hmm. talk about the Appalachian and just um, learn as much as could be learned about this uh, particular winery without actually going there. The four little bottles amounted to two glasses of wine Mm. split between two people. After that, everyone was like, okay, we're going to go get some more wine, make ourselves a cocktail. And uh, the other thing that we did was we all ordered a takeout from the same place. Mm -hmm. The wines have, I believe that they're meant to be paired with Persian food. So we ordered from, yeah, yeah. There was a restaurant in LA that was doing a whole Persian theme night and uh, all of our deliveries came around the same time. I think we we all live in the same neighborhood and the driver actually went from like one house oh, to the right. other. Yeah. And so then after the tasting, we opened up our, our delivery kits and had our own drinks and got to be sort of eating, not necessarily at the sa- exact same moment, but eating bites of some of the same things, talking about it, talking about the wine tasting. And then that yeah. just leads into, you know, more general sort of dinner party conversation about, you know, the news and life and like yeah. the crazy state that we're in. But yeah, for, for three and a half hours, it it was crazy by the time that things kind of petered out. One of my friends is a new mother. She was able to feed her son and kind of duck away at, at various moments that her husband was able to help too. And like mm-hmm. everyone was kind of just in their comfort zone it was really, it was really awesome. It felt less like a meeting and more just like, all right, we're just, we're all chilling on Zoom, yeah. eating the same food, drinking right. some of the same things. Part of what I find really difficult is the talking over thing. But mm-hmm. I guess if you only have, because it went from four boxes down to three boxes because the wine guy left, right? So then I guess it's a little bit easier because it's like, there's not as many people to talk over. But I always feel like I'm in these, you know, you'll have 12 people on Zoom or 10 people on Zoom. And I'm like making eyes at someone being like, I want to have a side conversation with you, but I can't, you know, I'm like, that's the beauty of side conversation, I think is the side convo. And then it's very hard to read the body language. It's true. I mean, it's like you need that perfect number where you can all have sustain a group conversation. That And it's true with real life. Like 12 people, it's too many to have a group conversation. But like five, six, you could do it. Yeah. You could do it. Yeah. It's also funny to try and make eyes over someone because are we all even in the same boxes? I don't think so. Like no. someone might be on speaker view and someone else might be on gallery and then you're That's fucked. part of what's so fucked up. Exactly. I'm always like looking at a person, imagining that they see that I'm looking at them. No, they don't see it. No, so no. <laughs> I have to say though, many takeaways from this, perhaps first and foremost is starting with an activity to put everyone on the same page and to kind of get everyone in the zone where it's, you know, as opposed to, Hey, we're having dinner. And then it's like, how does your dinner taste? How does mine taste? Like kind of centering yeah. people on a th- one thing to focus on that also happens to be alcoholic 
we're all here, we're doing this, we're having a communal event, and then gradually moving into, you know, just talking about whatever the hell you want to, that sounds like a really good natural progression for Zoom. It does. And the other, the the talking over on Zoom and on Google Meet, I I thought that Google Meet was a little bit better uh, with handling audio, but I did one recently and it was kind of the same. that that's definitely an issue. I I was just looking up a, a story that my friend Anna Russell at the New Yorker wrote about a platform called High Fidelity, which mm-hmm. is an audio only platform. Uh, I think it's a little bit like Clubhouse, which I'm also not familiar with, but it's made for group gatherings. And the idea is that you can sort of recreate that, like, hey, we're gonna go, you know, hang out by the armchair over here and have like a little bit of a conversation. Because in addition to the audio, I think that you see, you can kind of approach people through the app and like, Sophie, if you're over there and I'm over here, I can like scroll myself closer to you and then your audio will be louder to me than the audio of other people who are in the same room, but not as close on the app. It's hard to explain, and I don't know if I'm explaining it correctly, but it is called High Fidelity, and it's made for this kind of virtual cocktail party, virtual dinner party situation. We've that got is to check so that out. Cool. I also just keep on imagining that in three years or something, we're going to look back in this time at this time and be like, "Wow, we can't believe how bad actually so many of these programs were at the time." Obviously, we're lucky that this pandemic has even happened while we have the internet so we can stay connected. But I'm sure that in the next three years, things will just exponentially get so much better in terms of all of these sort of awkwardness of these apps. But I want to look up high fidelity. That sounds really cool. Yeah. That the idea of having an audio only type of format where you don't have that pressure to make eye contact and you don't have to sort of like be presentable and Mm -hmm. on um, could maybe lead to having more of those kind of confessional moments that you might have at a dinner party. Yeah. Yes. In your successful Zoom dinner parties, have you all has there always been an activity element to it? Yes. Okay. I'm okay. thinking. Yes, there 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 has been because I I like both of you have done that, you know, 12 different Zoom boxes either for a Zoom birthday or or just like a a catch up uh and there's no there's no activity or sort of agenda and it just devolves into like, let's go around the squares and everyone take three minutes and say what you're up to. And nothing yeah. makes me more nervous than <laughs> having to be in that lineup. I'm glad you said that because it makes me weirdly nervous too. And, and it's just nerve wracking. It's horrible. It's like how stand-up comics must feel dialed bit way back, obviously. But if the person before you is wildly funny and tells oh. some really engaging story or they're very emotional or like whatever it is, and then you're up and you're like, oh, I've been um, like <laughs> watching Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's just this pressure to like, like one-upmanship. Yes. This is a good nugget for us to have is that having an activity is kind of essential, at least to begin with. I think it just helps to relax everyone. It's kind of the same thing in a way, actually. Like Ari and I talk so much about when you are hosting a dinner party, you know, years years and years ago, you're going to a dinner party, having hosts taking care of you makes all the difference. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of the same thing, actually, with this activity thing. Is like if there's one person you can look towards to set you at ease, that's a big point. big help. Well, let's. I want to talk a little bit more about Onyx and how I wonder if this is, you know, a new kind of production for them to make these little bottles. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. There are a lot of wineries out there that have pivoted and figured out like, Hey, we'll, we'll send you and your friends, the bottles. Um, sometimes you can be anywhere in the country and me in Los Angeles, a friend in New York, a friend in Chicago, we could all get together and be drinking the same wine, which, uh, you know, organizing a wine trip in real life Mm -hmm. often takes a lot more work than, than that. And Mm -hmm. yes, it's, kind of a fun way to make it happen. <laughs> Wait, so as long as we're on the wine subject, you mentioned that you do these wine competitions. <laughs> what's happening in a wine competition? Are we blind tasting and like guessing what's what? You've got it. I actually, I have to credit my husband because he's the one who came up with this, but uh, 
there were there were a couple weeks in June where uh, people in Los Angeles were allowed to to gather with one another, and uh, he organized for his family a blind wine tasting. So he was sort of in on it because he organized it, but for the rest of the people attending, it was it was this fabulous game, and basically got three different bottles. The idea with this particular wine tasting was to see if people could tell which wine was the most expensive and if they liked the most expensive one. Uh, Because this particular group of people is very swayed by price. Like if a bottle of wine costs $100, they're like, oh, well, that has to be the best wine. Right. Which is not at all true. Right. The best wine is what you prefer and, and what suits your palate and what you want in that moment. We made up a a kind of worksheet uh, saying, describe each wine in three words, flavors, smells, what it reminds you of, anything goes, um, you know, if it reminds you of bubblegum, if it reminds you of soil, whatever, like pigs, who cares? Yeah. Um, What varietal of wine is it? So guess for wines one, two, and three, what varietal it might be. Which wine do you prefer? And then the cost of each wine. So people were writing this down and they were, they were sometimes they were like looking at the person next to them and saying, wait, what, what, what did you say it tastes like? Which, which one do you prefer? Um, because it, I, I think a lot of people who are not, uh, drinking wine that often, wine can be really intimidating. And Mm -hmm. especially when, when you're tasting something that you don't know, but yeah, it ended up being like a two hour long kind of fun sipping, talking, comparing notes activity where people got to to actually expand their their wine vocabulary and learn more about why does that wine cost $100 and this one only 20 even though it's the same varietal they're both cabernet and they're both from california mm. we're actually <laughs> trying to organize a virtual version of this uh with a as a sommelier who is a friend is going to pick out uh three wines and uh, with the same group of friends that got together last weekend, we're going to do a virtual tasting and all six of us will be uh, will be blind to what the wines are. And uh, the sommelier is going to lead us through um, a sort of guessing game to figure out what each wine is, how much it costs, uh, kind of a very dialed down version of uh, the sommelier exam. So is your, I mean, I know because you don't work for one particular publication, you don't have like a beat in the traditional sense, but it seems like mostly you do food, but is wine also a big part of what you're writing about now? You know, I, I, uh, I haven't written too much about wine. Honestly, there, there are so many, uh, journalists who specialize in wine and who have a level of knowledge that I don't, that I, I don't you know, get into the the process of rating wine or reviewing wine. But I certainly am interested in writing about new regions. A few years ago, I went to um, Valle de Guadalupe in in Mexico. So it's about, I I think, an hour or two south of San Diego. And uh, incredible Mexican wines there. And I wrote about the the wineries and the, the kind of experience that you can have down there. It's like going to Sonoma or Napa, but for, I don't know, a quarter of the cost, um, excellent food. And, and I do, I do love writing about these kind of unsung, uh, uh, undiscovered to some degree to, to outsiders, wine regions, uh, where you can, you can sample things that maybe, maybe you haven't heard about and you won't find in your local liquor store or wine shop. Uh, that is definitely a thing that I've, I've done and want to do more of when travel opens up again. Yeah. I'm reading a cookbook, but that's because it has like a lot of amazing text that our friend Kevin actually sent me about basically the Black Sea region mm-hmm. and how a group of Swedes came to a part of Romania and started growing wine there. They were like sent there by the English government, some crazy thing, but like there are so many wine regions that we just don't know about really in America at least, or like they don't have famous producers or just fascinated by that. What's the book called? It's called Black Sea. I really don't think that much about that part of Eastern Europe, Mm -hmm. about the Ukraine and Romania and like it's food that I really am not familiar with. So it's really, it's been a real joy to read. 
I went to uh, Tbilisi, which mm-hmm. is in Georgia, and Georgia is also on the Black Sea. Uh, that was uh, in 2019, and I had no idea the the history of of natural wine and, and wine in general in in Georgia and Tbilisi. Like, if you if you like natural wine, that should be number one on your list because that is the only thing that they pour there, and they yeah. have been doing it for centuries, and it's names of grapes that I cannot pronounce, but that, that I wasn't encountering here until Mm. recently. Now that like natural wine is becoming more of a thing, you are seeing some of these Georgian imports, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's funny, you know, we have, we have California and you, you know, some California cabs are, are known all around the world, but there are so many places in the world that that don't have that kind of um name recognition but are so worth reading about and going to see totally and actually then you kind of realize it's all just pr right it's like like slovenia didn't hire a big pr person to export their wines all over the world but it turns out they're fucking delicious yeah yeah to get them in wine spectator you know it's just it's all just who you know as long as we're talking about alcohol, you had mentioned that you have been discovering some new tequila and mezcal. I love tequila. I love mezcal. It's my favorite liquor, but I am so not an aficionado. And I feel like I usually drink it in a margarita, which I know is sacrilegious to some people. And like, I wouldn't do that to a good mezcal, but if I drink it neat, I don't mm-hmm. really like it that much. I mean, I like it. It's just too strong for me. So like, what have you been discovering? How are you discovering them? How do you drink them? I first, it is totally not sacrilege to have mezcal in a margarita, at least in my book. I, I, the, the times that I've been to Mexico, that is pretty much the, the first thing I order once I find a bar and, yes. and yeah, get off the plane. It, it really is, you know, I think mezcal, it does have more of that kind of smokiness, um, which really agrees with some people like, like me and, uh, and probably you, Sophie. And uh, some people are just like, no, I, I, I'm, I'm not into that uh, sort mm-hmm. of like burning in my throat feeling like mm-hmm. like gasoline. I don't know. I really like it. I, yeah. I love that. And uh, I actually, I brought up a, a bottle of <gasps> one of the mezcals I got the last time I was in Mexico. It's, uh, it's called Mezcal de Leyendas. And I'm, I hope I'm not totally butchering that, but... Um, it's cool. got this green label and it has these notes of uh, green bell pepper that I, I've never tasted anything like it before. Cool. I almost feel like I'm drinking like a salad or green mm. juice, except it's mezcal. And uh, yeah, I, there's something in my mind that maybe uh, tricks me into being like, oh, it's like more healthy because <laughs> I'm, I'm tasting all of these, these vegetables in here. Uh, I love that. In terms of drinking it, one like that, I would just have over ice, preferably one of those like big mm-hmm. cube or, yeah. or ball things that will melt slowly. Sometimes I do like a wedge of lime. If I, if I want a tequila and I want like a little bit of citrusy stuff in it, I'll squeeze in half a lime. I, I used to be a salt person. I'm not so much anymore. Mm. I do love a, are you familiar with sangrita? Yes. Wait, wait, wait. I want to guess. Hold on. I'm going to get it wrong. Is it, does it have to, let's play a game. Does it have to do with salt? Yes. There's salt in it. Is there? There could be salt in it. There could be salt. It's like a. Is it like a slushy? No, it's like a, it's like a, um, a dust. Is it like a dust? Isn't there like, is there coffee grounds or is there something red Mm, in it? It is red. Yes. Red. Yes. Yes, Okay. I see. I like a Michelada that's involved with the Michelada. It is similar to that. Yes. Is it cricket salt? No, I'm off base. Not not cricket salt. (laughs) (laughs) So it is, it's a, a chaser traditionally that is served as a partner to a shot of tequila or a shot of mezcal. <laughs> it's meant to cleanse the palate and be peppery and sort of, um, it is red. It kind of looks like tomato juice, but they also yeah. make green sangritas. And it's, it is a little bit like salty, um, at least the ones that I've had and liked. So uh, I don't have the the discipline to actually make it, but if I'm ever in a place 
that uh, does serve sangrita. That alongside a shot of tequila or mezcal with no accoutrement in the tequila. It's just like two clean little things to sip on. Um, That's my favorite. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, we see that a lot in all over uh, the world of different cultures with uh, their traditions around alcohol. Like in Russia, you'll you'll get just vodka and then like a lot of pickled vegetables or pickle juice just because the, the saltiness can help rehydrate you and help actually with the hangover the next day and also just kind of, yeah, cleanse your palate. I did not know that. Is that yeah. really? Re- so that's why pickles and, and alcohol kind of go together? Mm-hmm. And also tastes great. But like, I think the idea that, you know, people say, you know, if you just drink water, it's not like if you put a sprinkle of salt in your water, it just, I don't know, you get the electrolytes or magnesium, whatever it is. Um, but yeah, that's what you're putting into your body. You also should be drinking a, lo- a lot, a lot, a lot of water if you're consuming alcohol, but that's the whole, the pickly thing or sangrita. That's, it's a good, good pairing. I love the Russian vodka room when I lived in New York and I tried to create my own version of their garlic vodka by just peeling a whole bunch of garlic and putting it in the vodka bottle and letting go? it sit there <laughs> for weeks. Uh, it it wasn't bad, but it wasn't good. Yeah, It was not what I had had at the Russian vodka room and I had to go back there because... I I realized that this was not a thing that I could do myself. For our listeners who don't know, there's a place in New York called the Russian Vodka Room and it's incredible. You walk in and it's just all these different kinds of infused vodkas, but it's just like home infused vodka. So there's like Mm -hmm. dill and there's garlic, obviously, and there's blueberry and there's cherry and there's all these different kinds. It's so great there. I love it. There's probably garlic, but maybe some herbs or maybe, I I don't know, there might be like a bit of a first. Yeah. Or maybe they blanch it first. That's a really great point. I never thought about that. They probably do pickle it or put some kind of pickly product in there because I remember when I drank the the vodka um, from the Russian vodka room, you did get a little bit of like a, a tang, like there was yeah. a zip to it that yeah. didn't just come from the garlic. Well, we got to investigate. <laughs> Having an item place to go. Here we go. <laughs> Detectives over here. Back to Mezcal. I mean, it is such it's a booming industry for all of us here, but it's clearly, you know, hundreds of years old. There are so many different types because it, there are just all these small batches being produced. There is a, uh, a tequila, um, I think it's actually a miscall bar in uh, Los Angeles called La Cuvita. Mm-hmm. And they have, they're one of those places that has hundreds of different types of, of miscall. And while it can be really intimidating, I did go there once and I think that they have flights, they have tastings and it's like, okay, well, let me just try like these five, like little, not like an entire shot, just like a little, I don't know, few drops and, um, I'll order, I'll order one of them. (laughs) So, yeah, well, that's the problem. You can't try a bunch of shots of mezcal. You'll be finished after a puddle on the floor. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. Exactly. You have to be very judicious about, about how much you sip. But I really also actually, as we're talking about this, I feel like tequila is a very different drunk from other alcohols, at least for me when I drink it. And I remember my parents went to Mexico and kept on sending me videos from there and they would be, they, you know, went to all of these mezcal farms and tequila places and they were drinking so much and they would send me videos and I, I just have some mezcal. And then five minutes later, completely sober. It's like the veil is on and then suddenly it lifts, which like, maybe I shouldn't be telling myself this because it's definitely going <laughs> to convince me to drink more tequila, but I do huh. feel like it's a very different feeling than say like vodka or gin or something. It totally is. I, I, you know, the first thing that I ever heard about tequila, I, I was a freshman in college and some frat guy said tequila and cashews are a natural fat burner. <laughs> and I'm like, um, and that just stuck with me this long. Yeah. Uh, however, what did his body people, look like this person sounds insane. <laughs> not <laughs> like a person, <laughs> not like a person who would necessarily know about right. what was burning fat. But, um, <laughs> it did get me intrigued. And, uh, and people do say that tequila is an energizer. Agave is an energizer. Yeah. And I certainly feel when I when I'm like a tequila mezcal kind of drunk versus 
definitely a wine kind of drunk. I have way more energy with the tequila. And I don't know if that's because of uh, a lack of sugar or Mm. especially if you're drinking, if you're just drinking it straight without like the, the sugary kind of stuff that gives us all hangovers, then yeah, it could just be fun and like be able to snap back to your sober self in a moment. But I've also had the experience where I've said, okay, I'm just going to drink tequila tonight and I'm going to wake up in the morning and I have no hangover at all. And that doesn't happen. (laughs) I have a hangover. (laughs) I feel like garbage. (laughs) (laughs) But I totally do subscribe to this idea that different alcohols make you different types of drunk. And, And all of these studies are constantly coming out like that is not true. Alcohol is alcohol, but that must be false because they're made from different things and they make you, it just, it's different drinking something that was made from like an aloe plant, something that was made from a grape or something that was made from wheat. It's total BS that alcohol is just alcohol. People talk about mezcal having these uh, sort of mystical, magical qualities. Sign me up. (laughs) (laughs) There is a female owned uh, label called Gem and Bolt. And I believe that their mezcal is infused with Damiana, which is an is an extract that is supposed to be a natural aphrodisiac. Yeah, try that. Pivoting a little bit away from alcohol, I was reading your beautiful, wonderful article about Goggin. And part of what you were, so you are first-generation Indian-American, and you were mentioning the fact that Indian food often isn't treated with the same degree of reverence as Eurocentric cuisine. And I was just wondering if you feel like that's changed, if you want to see it change more. I would just, you know, love to hear you talk a little bit about that. I do think it's changing. Uh, and I think you can see in, there is there is a pretty significant shakeup in, in the mainstream food media world uh, last spring and summer. And there has been a push to, to celebrate uh, cuisines from more parts of the world than we were familiar with uh, previously. So I do think that there there has been an effort to uh, explore, you know, it's not just Indian cuisine, there's South Indian, there's North Indian. And then within the South and North, there are so many different varieties of of, uh, cuisines that are specific to certain cities, to certain uh, states, and being able to celebrate the uh, variety of different Indian cuisine uh, does seem to be like something that's happening more than certainly it was five or 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the majority of, of say, Michelin uh, reviewers have a Eurocentric palate because that's what they, that's where they were born and that's what they've grown up with. And you right. can't necessarily blame them for that. But when you do have people who are maybe not intimately familiar with the variety of of Indian cuisine or or any um, country that's foreign to them when they don't know all the ins and outs of it, they haven't necessarily grown up eating that kind of food their entire life. You're going to come away with a different sort of rating system and and uh, you may not regard it as highly as a really you know wonderful interpretation of say like a roast chicken that you grew up with looking at who is doing the rating and how much do these ratings matter? I, I think that people are, are really thinking about like, well, what does three Michelin stars really mean? What does it mean to be on the world's 50 best list? Do, do these titles have anything, any correlation to how good the food actually is, especially when, when taste is such, such a subjective thing. I was in Bangkok recently and, you know, there's this, um, there's a woman who has a food stall who now has one or three Michelin stars. I forget how many and lines out the door, of course, two hours before she opens, there's crazy lines. And I'm not saying that her food is any better or any worse than anyone's because I didn't get to eat it. But I think there's this weird thing of like, oh, now there's a, there's a, a food hawker in Thailand that has a Michelin star. So she must be the best where it's like, well, maybe there's room to pay that degree of reverence to a lot of these people because a lot of people's stories are just as moving in her as hers. And a lot of people have been doing this for their entire lives. So it's a very weird, sorry, go ahead, Ari. 
She's well, making a lot of gestures. This is exactly how I feel about Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> I have been having this argument with the people that I live with for months. But it what is not, argument? It's like, just like, he's great, but there are a lot of other great actors. 100%. We love DTL, but there are other people out there. Yeah. And we love that woman hawking her wares, but there are probably just, yes, there are lots and lots and lots of people. And sometimes it's great when one person gets a bit of recognition, even if we think that Michelin stars are, you know, BS, just because it draws attention to that person and that the people surrounding them, which yeah. is, I think, good. But I totally agree. It's it's so subjective and, and got to feel unfair if you're like the uh, the person with the stall to the right of that woman. Like you said, Ari, the one the, the thing about say a a restaurant in Bangkok getting um, a Michelin star being being sort of known on this world stage is that if it makes more people go to that city and and Bangkok is a, and Thailand in general is a place that derives a lot of of its dollars from tourism, mm-hmm. uh, especially from people coming from abroad. And it is you know there there is a certain group of people who every year when the world's 50 best or the the Michelin guide comes out say okay i'm going to go through this thing and check out check off as many as i can and it's like it's like a game or it's like the amazing race but like for food and mm-hmm. and gastronomic tourism and you know you can you can say what you want about the the spending and the the sort of uh ethos that goes behind that but again if you're bringing money and attention to parts of the world that need it, that could benefit from it, then, you know, maybe it's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. But I think in, you know, we, in this world where social media can be used for good or, or evil to the nth degree, one small positive is that, you know, as someone who, you know, I was like, reading Zagat when I was like 18, like, where am I going to go to eat in New York City? And then I was reading Michelin guides and then Yelp. But now with Instagram, it's taking some of the power away from critics and and people who, you know, professionally are in those kinds of clubs who are, who get to decide what restaurants get whatever amount of stars. Suddenly you can just go on Instagram and just see pictures of the food. And it's not about good, better, best. It's just uh, this, this food looks interesting. This food looks delicious and anyone can, can scroll. That's also very tricky because then it's about people who are able to make dishes that look beautiful. And most of my favorite food is not gorgeous when you see it on the plate. So I feel like there's a very tricky thing there where it's like, yes, it's in the hands of the power is in the hands of the chef in one way, but in, I mean, Prune does not have an Instagram presence and it's my favorite restaurant in New York. And like, they never will. And I think they're obviously okay with that power not being in their hands, but they don't need it. But I do think that it makes it a little bit of an uneven playing field. Yes. But (laughs) if you are in the business of making food for other people to buy. Like it is also a visual, like there is a degree of effort put into how it looks, even if it is like all brown and, or whatever, or like, it's all (laughs) like a, some like weird looking chunky thing. Like you, there's an effort, you just, it is a visual medium as well. So anyone in the game knows, you know? It's, it's true. And I, I think that, uh, I also like the, my favorite things to make my favorite things to eat, like do not photograph. Well, they mm-hmm. would not look good. And in, in, on my Instagram grid, but I will say that, uh, seeing, seeing all of these photos, especially these tablescape photos or these artfully plated dishes has made me, uh, not necessarily consciously, but I've, I've I'm thinking about it now. I've, tried a little bit harder to plate my own food hmm. and and make it look nice. Uh there is something not like I'm not taking a tweezer and putting flowers and you know like like herbs that I've foraged on top of anything. But uh there is something to having a pleasant visual sort of aesthetic experience as you're eating. Like something that looks I, very appealing to you and, and for lack of a better word, pretty, sometimes it just, especially in this time when we're all kind of confined to our own homes and eating a lot of takeout or, or whatever it is that we're making, it makes things feel a little bit nicer, a little bit fancier, a little bit more like, like being at a restaurant. Back to Indian food really quickly. 
<laughs> Do you have, is there like a particular regional cuisine that you love the most? Ooh, there, I, I don't think I could pick one that I love the most. Um, I, I'm South Indian. My, my mother grew up, uh, outside of Bangalore and my father grew up in Trivandrum, which is the southernmost, uh, uh, city in India. And yeah, the cuisine, there is a lot of, uh, like rice based kind of, uh, fermented rice based dishes like dosa, idlis, which are these, uh, rice dumplings. And, um, I love that food. I, it is not necessarily something that I crave all the time. Whereas say like, um, chicken tikka masala, which is not really an Indian invention. It was apparently invented, uh, by a chef, a Bangladeshi chef in Scotland to please the, the UK palate, uh, back in the sixties or seventies. Uh, but that's, it is a dish that I grew up with going to Indian restaurants because it's, it's become, you know, sort of the symbol for, for Indian cuisine abroad. And that it's a crowd pleaser. It's, okay. it's something that, yeah, like having, having that and rice, or I'm a big fan of, uh, raita, which is mm-hmm. like India's version of, um, tzatziki, mm-hmm. yogurt, cucumbers, some spices, lemon. I like, I could, I could eat buckets of it. Um, mm. but yeah, I wouldn't say I don't have a, a, a particular favorite region. I usually go to India, uh, once a year, uh, this past year I was not able to, and I sorely miss eating the food there because there's just, I don't know if it's the freshness of the ingredients or, uh, just sort of the, the magic of the surroundings, but whether it's something that you're eating off the street or in a, a high-end restaurant, it's all just so delicious. And, and, and yeah. like going to Italy, like you have the pasta there and it's like, Oh, what, what am I eating at home? Yeah. <laughs> That's not this. Well, we have our final question that we always ask, but Sophie, do you want to ask it? I feel like I've been asking it a lot lately. I'm happy to ask it. You are on a desert island. There's nothing around. There's no one around. What chip would you like to have with you on this desert island? Uh, Dorito spicy nacho. Ooh. Is it spicy nacho or like spiciest nacho? Whatever the the nacho one, but spicy. I see. Love it. I love that. Yeah. Great answer. Absolutely. Do I get, do I get other things too, or just the chip? I mean, if you want to tell us what else you would like to bring, you're very welcome to. Uh, I love those chips with uh, a little baby bell cheese. Those, uh, like, take one by the the little cheese. nothing like those. Even though they don't even taste that good, there's just something comforting about them. And then you have the wax in your pocket for a while, and you kind of play with it. It's like one of those stress balls. (laughs) I did that once, and it got stuck to my phone camera. No, <laughs> I pull out my phone and I'm like, why is there this weird red stuff all over oh, it? No. And um, yeah, yeah. Careful what you do with that baby bell wax. So great. Love her. Love her. So much. I just want to go back and read everything she's ever written. I was thinking about her article about Goggin was really, you know, if you guys don't know, Goggin is this, is an Indian chef who's based out of Bangkok He's a bit of a renegade. He's doesn't really want to be part of the establishment. And she has a really great article about it that I encourage you to read. And he also has a chef's table, but I also went to the restaurant and it was really bad, which I'm really <laughs> like kind of fascinated by because I'm like, I totally love the idea of what he's doing, mm-hmm. but the food for me fell so far short of what it's touted as. And at the same time, like then reading her article about him, I was like, I sort of don't even mind that the food wasn't that good because I think what he's trying to stand for is really exciting. Anyway, Prince Harry, Megan, (laughs) Oprah. I'm shocked you watched, actually. I didn't watch. Oh, (laughs) there we go. So what do you want to talk about? I want to talk about what did you think? I keep on watching (laughs) snippets because I'm like, can I learn something from Oprah? Just watch it. I mean, I thought... I had some British friends texting me during it being like, this is disgraceful, blah, 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 which I felt like, is it? I don't know. I guess, I guess. But 
I think it's good to get their point of view out there because we we hear kind of the royal point of view all the time. Like that's the only side we're allowed to hear. And then anything else is like just salacious and gross. But also, um, I think that the British tabloids are so evil. I mean, we think that that paparazzi here and that the tabloids here are bad. They're so much worse there. And anyone who wants to come out and speak against them, if that cycle can just change or just, I don't know, if they can calm the fuck down, that is good. And I think that this is a step in that direction just to raise awareness. So destructive. Super destructive. I mean, I am interested in, it seems like Americans and Brits have wildly different opinions because all of my American friends are texting being like, obviously the family is racist. Thank God this is finally coming out. Like Mm -hmm. I can't even believe that the things that they are saying. And then I think that a lot of Brits are like, it's possible that they are saying things that are somewhat rash and are potentially not true, et cetera, et cetera. But you know what? It's a, he said, she said kind of a world. And I just wanted to learn from Oprah. I was watching her. What? I was like, okay, maybe we introduce that into our interviews. The what? The Oprah what? I'd love this. Okay, let's try it. Here. Right. Um, do you want to play Oprah? Sure. Okay. You could just ask me a question. So when's the last time you were allowed to bring meat into the house that you're staying at? Well, funny you should ask because I have, the vegetarians have been gone and yet I've been cooking more vegetarian food in their absence. What? Whoa. All right, let me try again. What? 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 Yeah. Who does, like, who are you cooking these vegetarian pauses. meals for? Who said that? Who <laughs> asked about that? Yeah. She well, she just kind of because she's Oprah, she's allowed to ask all the questions that we want her to ask. But we but That's if anyone job. else asks that, it's it's she's literally asking like, well, who said that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, but if Oprah asks it, you're it sounds smart. So true. It's so true. Well, guys, that was having a night's hot take on the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. That's right. (laughs) Maybe they'll start a podcast channel. They already have a fucking podcast. Oh, yes. They have a deal with Spotify. Harry and I listened to the like trailer and I got to say, I cringed. Yeah. Boring. But hey, I'm if I'm happy for them, they're doing their thing and it may be a very tyrannical environment. I can imagine getting out. Oh, I think it so. feels quite liberating. So, oh, I think it sounds awful. I totally believe everything she said. Okay. Anyway, guys, we're going to see you next week. We will see you next week for chip hour. In case you didn't get the memo, we're doing it every other week now because we're tapped the fuck out. <laughs> Talk about COVID fatigue. It's just been a lot. And we want to make sure that our chip hours are filled with top grade, A plus entertainment. Kobe beef. Exactly. So yeah, we're not just going to get on there and kind of, you know. So we'll see you next week, but not the week after, but we will see you on our podcast next week. Get it guys. I'm confused. Don't worry about it. Anyway, we'll see you when we see you. We love you. Colin. Thank you. Sheila. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. What a dream. Um, and we will talk soon. Bye guys. Bye.